0: If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, October 6th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we'll be reading the following articles. A Hazy Future by Will Matsuka A Change in Trajectory by Chad Peterson. Climate Classicism by Jazzy J. Gray. Gas Pops Revisited by David Kirby. Making Space by Jazzy J. Gray. Between the Notes by Michael J. Casey. Overdue Praise for the Shishito by Ari Laveau. Bridging the Knowledge Gap by Will Brenza. A hazy future. Was killing the permit for the Dow Flats quarry the end of operations at Semex Lyons Cement Plant, or an invitation to pollute for decades to come? By Will Matsuka. For decades, residents in Lyons have raised concerns about the cement plant and its quarry located outside of town. We're the closest community to the plant and the mine, and I can tell you that the cement dust is everywhere, says Holly Rogan, mayor of Lyons. The Semex Lyons cement plant, south of Highway 66 and its adjacent quarry at Dow Flats north of the highway, has long been a focus of community concern around air quality, light and noise pollution, traffic impacts, and negative effects on local property values. In May, when Semex applied with Boulder County Parks and Open Space for a 12-year extension on the life of the Dow Flats Quarry, where the plant mined raw materials to make cement, some community members saw it as an avenue to end operations at both the mine and the plant. We're just people who want the biggest polluter to go away, says Kathleen Sands, who started the Lions Climate Action Group and has focused on raising awareness around issues with the Semex plant. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, the plant is the top emitter of greenhouse gases in Boulder County, emitting 357,101 metric tons of CO2 equivalent a year 2020. The second highest pollution in the county is the CU Boulder Power Plant, with 55,263 metric tons of CO2 equivalent a year in 2020. Sands and the others hoped Semex couldn't operate without the mine, at least not profitably. The mining permit application went through a public land use process with the Boulder County Board of County Commissioners over the summer. Gathering testimonies from citizens and reviewing documents. Commissioner Claire Levy saw how important this decision was for the public. We handled a lot of testimony, Levy says. There was something that was obviously of great public interest. Thursday, September 29th, the county commissioners voted two to one to deny Semex's permit application to keep mining at Dow Flats. It looks like an environmental victory, one step closer to getting the biggest polluter in the county off Lyon's doorstep. But some believe the decision could lock in the county's largest CO2 polluter for decades to come. The deal. The Lyon's cement plant, located 20 miles from Rocky Mountain National Park, was built in 1969 and acquired by Mexico-based CEMEX in 2000. The building materials company acquired a 25-year permit to mine at Dow Flats, which expired on September 30th. The raw materials mined at Dow Flats were sent south over Highway 66 to the plant, where they were heated in a kiln to produce Portland cement. Semex believes renewing the permit for Dow Flats Quarry is the most efficient method to obtain materials to produce cement that is vital for the growth of Colorado, the company states on its website. Semex did not respond to multiple interview requests. The original mining extension application submitted to the county, co-signed by Parks and Open Space, stipulated that parks and open space would acquire about 1,800 additional acres of open space. The county has been paying for 700 of those acres since 1997. Semex also proposed an increased lease payment, 400 times more than payments under the previous permit, to the county, and the closure of both the mine and the plant after 15 years. In the final hearing before the commissioners voted, Semex sweetened the deal by lowering the proposal from 15 to 12 years and offsetting 5% of their annual greenhouse gas emissions through renewable energy credits. Commissioner Levy, who voted to deny the permit, simplified Semex's proposal as an attempt to simply throw some money at it. Now that the proposal is denied, the mine ceased operations on September 30th and will undergo a three year reclamation process. The county will get 774 acres of open space and Semex will remain owner of the land. In a May 2nd press release announcing Semex's mining extension proposal, Boulder County Parks and Open Space wrote that Semex could operate its plant indefinitely. Even after the mine closes. A difficult decision. Boulder County Commissioner Matt Jones says he wants the Semex plant gone as much as anyone else, but he voted to approve Semex's mining proposal. He says it was a hard decision. The guaranteed shutdown at 12 years, over 1,000 acres of open space. That's the nugget, really, he says. <laughs> Jones also drew on county staff who recommend approval of the permit. On the other hand, the county's planning commission unanimously voted to recommend the commissioners deny. Commissioner Levy voted with Commissioner Marta Locheman against the mining extension. Levy says she didn't feel like the additional acres of open space in the proposal would do anything to offset the direct impacts of mining, like reported fugitive dust clouds. She also says she didn't see enough data showing impacts from or comparisons between proposed scenarios. There wasn't any fresh analysis based on current circumstances as to whether Semex is still compatible with its original permit, Levy says. I don't think SEMEX should have a high degree of confidence that they'll be able to continue operating that plant as long as they want to. The uncertainty surrounding the plant's lifespan revolves around SEMEX's permitting and legal nonconforming use status. The plant became legally nonconforming in 1994, which means it was built before current zoning laws and is therefore not permitted by current zoning laws. Because the plant is legal nonconforming, SEMEX has a vested property right to continue operations as long as it doesn't increase the size of the plant or the plant's footprint. SEMEX doesn't have to abide by current zoning and special use permit requirements. But if SEMEX doesn't follow these rules, the plant could be shut down. Semex is forced to bring materials to its Lyons plant from somewhere else now that the Dow Flats mining permit has expired. Proponents of shutting the quarry down think the increased cost of trucking in materials will shutter the plant sooner rather than later. If Semex needs to build infrastructure on site to support increased truck traffic, thereby changing the plant's size and footprint, it could cause Semex to lose legal nonconforming status. Attorney James R. Silvestro, representing local environmental group Save Our St. Vrain Valley, wrote in a memo to the Boulder County Board of County Commissioners that, Without a formal administrative review, county staff has incorrectly assumed that the cement plant is a legal nonconforming use and that it will not lose that status if the application is denied and Semex is forced to supply the cement plant with imported raw materials. Jones voted in favor because he wanted to take the sure thing. The closing of both the plant and the quarry after 12 years would add more guaranteed pollution, but he valued knowing when the plant would close. He thinks Semex really could run the lion's plant for decades to come. Nobody knows how long that plant will be there. My guess was long beyond 12 years, he says and we will have a lot more air pollution from it, both greenhouse gases and more direct pollution. Boulder County's climate goals include reducing greenhouse gas emissions 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, and 90 percent below 2005 levels in 2050. Both sides of the Semex debate believe their stance supports these goals. I think extending the permit is more likely to meet the greenhouse gas goals eventually, says Jones. Dale Case, director of Boulder County Community Planning and Permitting, says the mining permit expiring does not change any permitting for Semex's cement plant. According to Case, Semex can continue operating the plant under state law unless the company makes changes that could trigger a lose of legal nonconforming status and there are currently no proposed changes. If Semex takes steps that lead to the loss of its legal non-conforming status, it could apply for a special-use permit to continue operating under the current land-use code. Without seeing an application, Case couldn't say how difficult that permit would be to acquire. Right now, Case says, it's all speculation as to what is going to happen with the plant site. Semex and the community. In reviewing Semex's mining application, Boulder County sent notices to property owners within a one mile radius of the Dow Flats quarry. Of those who responded to the notices, 238 were in opposition to the county renewing the mining permit and 10 were in support. On its website, Semex writes, The Lions Cement Plant has been recognized repeatedly for its environmental performance and community outreach accomplishments by organizations including Wildlife Habitat Council, Portland Cement Association, the National Association of Environmental Professionals, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The company sponsors community events and works with schools on an environmental education. While the community health impacts from the plant are unknown, the EPA finds cement plants are significant sources of sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, and carbon monoxide. Cement plants also produce particulate matter that is regulated by the state. At the state level, the Colorado Air Pollution Control Division provides compliance oversight of CEMEX Lions. Since 2000, SEMEX has been the subject of 12 formal enforcement actions. Based on observations during inspections, APCD also found SEMEX Lions not in compliance with 12 permit requirements in 2018, out of compliance due to two violations in 2019, and not in compliance with six requirements in 2020. Semex has also reached settlements with the EPA four times due to violations. In 2013, Semex paid a $1 million civil penalty to resolve violations of the Clean Air Act at the plant in Lyons. The most recent settlement between Semex and the EPA was in 2016. A hazy future. Therese Gloacki, Director of Boulder County Parks and Open Space, supports the commissioner's decision, and says the commissioners did what they thought best for the community. 700 acres will be coming to open space in three years, so that's a good thing, Glowacki says. Mayor Holly Rogan is proud her community showed up and voiced their opinions. It was so much work from so many people, Rogan says. So many people in our community banded together and worked so hard. I am very grateful to the county commissioners for being able to see all the nuances of an incredibly complex situation. For the time being, we wait to see how Semex will move forward. A change in trajectory. Local polar explorer Ryan Waters explains how he did a lot of really hard stuff to become the first American to complete the True Adventurer's Grand Slam by Chad Peterson. I should write a song called Crying in My Goggles, Ryan Waters remembers muttering aloud as he and fellow polar adventurer Eric Larsen prepared to cross a gap between Arctic ice. It's day 53 of Waters and Larsen's 2014 ski expedition to the North Pole, and the two are a single day's push, just three miles, from the pole when they come upon another break in the Arctic Shelf, a floating platform of ice that forms where continental ice meets the sea. These breaks have become more and more prominent as Earth's climate has warmed, pushing huge glaciers into the sea, increasing ocean levels, and slowly drowning coastal cities across the globe. Waters and Larsen, who both call Boulder home these days, have taken turns stripping down to wetsuits and swimming between these gaps in the ice while pulling the sleds and their fellow adventurer. Now it's Larsen's turn to swim and Waters' chance to float. On the opposite side, Larsen struggles to pull himself onto the shelf, After multiple tries, he finally beaches himself on the ice. The duo launched their trip at Cape Discovery on the northern coast of Canada, packing two sleds weighing over 300 pounds each. Over 53 days, the pair endured temperatures as low as minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit, pressure ridges in the ice as high as 12 feet, and polar bears lurking around the Arctic tundra. The final three miles took a grueling eight hours, but upon arriving at the North Pole, Waters became the first American to complete the True Adventurer's Grand Slam. To join, an adventurer must climb the seven summits, the highest mountain peak on each continent, and ski unsupported, no resupplies or outside help, and unassisted, no mechanical wind or guide help, to both of the Earth's poles. It's been seven years since Waters and Larson completed their Arctic expedition, giving Waters time to reflect on his accomplishment in his recently released book, An American's Grand Slam, A True Adventurer's Unlikely Journey, out now from Falcon Guides. Part adventure story, part memoir. Waters details his transformation from a high school football player who craved time in the outdoors to his desk job as a geologist to become an assistant climbing instructor for Outward Bound in North Carolina to his trips in the North and South Poles and conquering the Seven Summits. He'll speak about his adventures at a book reading at Boulder Bookstore on November 10th. Almost by Accident Waters remembers dreaming about climbing mountains on the first day of his final physics class at Ole Miss. He found himself unable to focus on the lecture, transfixed on the notion of scaling a towering, snow-covered Himalayan peak called Pumori, daughter mountain in the Sherpa language. Waters made a promise to one day visit the mountain and climb its graceful slopes. Waters graduated with a degree in geology and took a job in Atlanta working as an environmental consultant. After three years there, he applied for a job with Outward Bound in North Carolina. That was the literal moment I felt the direction of this life begin to take a significant turn, he writes in his book. Waters worked at Outward Bound in North Carolina for a year, and then landed a job with the company working in Patagonia. Before heading to South America, Waters took every opportunity to get out and climb, whether it be on the soaring mountains of Wyoming or the sandstone boulders of Horsepens 40 in the Appalachian Mountains of Alabama. In the wild and pristine environment of Argentine Patagonia, Waters honed his skills moving across rock, snow, and glaciers. When I started working in South America, it was a big experience, Waters says, because I was not only instructing people, but I was working with other instructors who did it a lot and learning stuff from them. In 2007, while part of an expedition aiming for the summit of Cho Oyu, a Tibetan peak that ranks sixth highest in the world, Waters met Norwegian explorer Cecilie Skog who had completed the True Adventurer's Grand Slam. The two became friends, and on a visit to Boulder, Skog mentioned the possibility of crossing Antarctica. Waters jumped at the opportunity. I do consider myself a mountain climber first, Waters admits. The polar stuff came almost by accident, by running into these people in these circles that I was in. It's not like you're just going out cross-country skiing in Colorado. It's remote. There is a challenging environment. There are a lot of different skill sets that I didn't know about. So once I agreed to cross Antarctica with Skog, I had that feeling like, shit, now I gotta actually figure this out. Waters and Skog skied across Antarctica in 70 days in 2010 covering 1,117 miles from Berkner Island to the South Pole, completing their journey by skiing to the Ross Sea. Four years passed, and in that time, Waters ticked off Mount Vincent, completing his Seven Summits bingo card. Waters and Larson's 53-day ski expedition to the North Pole has yet to be repeated and it is unlikely that a ski expedition from the coast of Canada to the North Pole will ever happen again, due to warming temperatures causing less stability in the ice shelf. The conditions and thin ice make it much harder now than in the past, which is a major hurdle in itself, Waters says. Equally important, the company that used to support the flight options from Canada has since decided to no longer support expeditions to the North Pole, due to the challenges presented by thinning seasonal ice. So it is kind of a bittersweet thing to have potentially done what could stand as the final trip in this fashion. Climate Classicism Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra brings planetary peril into focus with season opener Ozymandias by Jesse J. Gray. What's the sound of a biosphere on the brink? For Drew Heminger, the answer to that question lies in a multitude of voices. That's why the New York-based independent composer employs more than standard classical accompaniment in his latest work, Ozymandias, to sell a planet, making its world premiere with the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra on October 8th. Marking the debut of the accompanying Boulder Philharmonic Chorus, anchored by tenor soloist Matthew Plank, the urgent new symphony also incorporates UN climate reports, indigenous texts, and speeches by activist Greta Thunberg across its five movements. There's an arc to the piece, a story, Heminger says. The first movement is when only Native Americans were on this land. The second movement is the Industrial Revolution. In the third movement, I was thinking about the Weimar Republic, a decadent society on the verge of collapse. The fourth movement is what's happening now, and the fifth movement is a sort of warning to humanity. Bringing these elements together under the umbrella of classical performance, the resulting collaboration with Boulder Philharmonic music director, Michael Butterman is a call to action asking audiences to consider their place in the imperiled ecosystem we call home. Michael said environmentalism and science are both important things that resonated in Boulder, and these are both important things that resonate with me personally, Heminger says. I think if it doesn't resonate with you, then you're living with your head in the sand. For Heminger, That resonance began with childhood visits to his grandparents' home in Florida, a part of the country where the ravages of climate change are increasingly hard to ignore, evidenced most recently by the devastating Category 4 hurricane that has killed more than 100 people in the Sunshine State at the time of this writing. Spending all the time in the ocean and fishing helped me develop a love of nature, Now, seeing how dramatically things are shifting, it has become very personal for me, he says. But it never occurred to me to write a piece about climate change. I've never really written anything so directly political. Hymn to the Earth Engaging with the political movement is a key piece of Ozymandias. While drawing historical inspiration from Percy Bysshe Shelley's classical poem of the same name, dovetailed with Shawnee Chief Tecumseh's To Sell a Country speech from the early 19th century. The composition also features excerpts from the latest grim report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These findings broadly indicate that climate-related risks to health, livelihoods, food security, water supply, human security, and economic growth are projected to increase with global warming. Dubbed Hymn to the Earth, Saturday's Evening of Music at Mackey Auditorium, marking the launch of the Boulder Philharmonic Orchestra's 2022-23 season, will also feature performances of Michael Abel's Global Warming, along with time-tested classics like the overture to Mozart's Don Giovanni, Trauer music from Wagner's Gotterdammerung and Strauss's Don Juan. I'm hoping people who know that music will hear it in a different context, in the scope of how these pieces are put together. If people are slightly hesitant about new music, there's a lot of familiar stuff on this program they will love, says Butterman, the Boulder Phil's music director. On the other hand, this is a chance to really hear a fresh and vibrant compositional voice addressing the existential issue of our time. In addition to serving as an early creative partner for Heminger in the evolution of Ozymandias, Butterman found himself saddled with another important task, bringing the composer's harrowing vision of climate catastrophe to life. But the local conductor says audiences should expect more than standard doom and gloom. We've been through a couple years of really odd times with COVID, Butterman says. So, although the subject matter of the concert is very serious, I hope it has a kind of celebratory feeling of getting back together again to address a problem that needs everyone's attention. In terms of addressing that intractable problem, representatives from the City of Boulder's Climate Initiatives Department will be on hand during the upcoming program to discuss action strategies and resources. Audience members will also have the chance to participate in the city's climate audio collage project by sharing their own visions for a more climate-resilient boulder. While such focus on the political structures governing our lives is an essential component to fighting climate change, Butterman and Heminger agree that artists and works like Ozymandias also have a vital role to play in responding to the most pressing problems of our contemporary moment. When you use something like art, whether it's visual art, music, or theater, you impact the emotional center of people's intelligence. And that often is more of a motivating factor for people, Butterman says. To go from intellectual acknowledgement to actual action, sometimes we need that emotional drive to have a connection with something. I think that's what art provides. On the bill... Ozymandias, To Sell a Planet, 7 p.m. Saturday, October 8th, Mackey Auditorium at CU Boulder, 1595 Pleasant Street. Tickets, $22 to $94. Gas Pops Revisited Clay Rose of Gasoline Lollipops talks about beating career burnout Revisiting Old Songs and Unquitting the Music Business Ahead of Album Release Show at Boulder Theatre by David Kirby Anyone familiar with Clay Rose's songwriting knows his favorite themes dancing with or running from personal demons testing the limits of mortality, sin and redemption regret and release the devil, the preacher, a soiled conscience, a bruised soul The eternal karmic skirmish. The pandemic hit Rose and his band Gasoline Lollipops hard. The front-range outfit had just completed all the misery money can buy, a well-produced, musically ambitious offering recorded at the iconic Dockside Studio in Louisiana. Rose took it upon himself to line up supporting gigs, networking, and shaking hands. Was this going to be the album that vaulted his award-winning alt-country-slash-Americana band to the next strata? That was the first album, and the only time in my life where I had really done a record from the recording process through the promotion process correctly, Rose told Boulder Weekly. I hired the people you're supposed to hire to do those things. The whole thing was completely self-funded, and I'm not a wealthy person. That was a whole lot of work and a whole lot of money that went into it, only to have the rug pulled out from beneath our feet at the last second. But despite the extra work and expense, including months booking two separate tours, Rose says relief was the first emotion he experienced upon learning of the impending shutdown. I felt relief that I didn't have to go out for four months and miss vital steps in my baby daughter's life, Rose said. And I felt so relieved that for a moment I thought, maybe I shouldn't be playing music anymore, that I got so caught up in the career path that I didn't see the signs telling me I was done. And I even told the guys in the band that I thought maybe I was done. And then, after a couple of months of not playing, I realized I really missed playing at the Gold Hill Inn, he continued. Whatever had been amputated from me fit perfectly at the Gold Hill Inn. So after years of tours and bigger stages, rising Spotify stats, album releases, and critical plaudits, the key for Rose, the spark of reinvigoration after getting flattened by the pandemic shutdown, actually came from the stage, the small stage. It's connection with other people, he says. When the stage gets too big and the room gets too big, I have a hard time connecting with people. For me, it wasn't just the pandemic or the Trump debacle. It wasn't just the George Floyd thing or my stepdad dying or the forest fires burning down half the state. It was everything all at once, he continued. I think we all did it, but I certainly got the shit kicked out of me on a really deep level. And when I came back on stage, it was with a limp. I couldn't go out there with my rock and roll face and pretend it was the same party we were rocking before the interruption. I have a lot of baggage to unpack. Emerging from near collapse, Rose and the band returned this summer to produce their new album, Nightmares, featuring a handful of new songs and new recordings of earlier material, some dating back to 2012. Recorded at Animal Lane in Lyons and mixed at PS Audio in Boulder, the album's DSD, Direct Stream Digital, treatment renders an articulated intimate sound. Given Rose's newfound appreciation of close-up connection to his audience, the new LP reflects a mature re-read of material that got the failed breaks rock treatment the first time around. It represents a healthy distance from the band's early days, when, as Rose concedes, they didn't always know what they were doing in the studio. When the dust settled and we grew up a little bit, we realized we had wasted some really great songs, Rose said. We re-recorded a bunch more than actually made the cut, but a lot of them just didn't land. One track that did land was Mary Rose, a standout on the new album. A tribute to Rose's sister, who died under tragic circumstances in 2005. The song stands as a pained and poised, almost prayerful ballad. A far cry from the chugging, up-tempo country rocker the band first delivered on Resurrection in 2017. We re-recorded it the way I wrote it. That was a deeply personal song to me. I wanted people to hear the lyrics, he said. And it's always been a crowd favorite, as far as a dance song goes. I always thought it was interesting watching people dancing to this story, but at the same time, it was okay. It was celebratory of her life. Still, there were some nights when it was pretty rough, when the crowd was drunk and it's turning into a meat market scene out on the dance floor, and I'm up there grieving my sister, he continued. But the octane tank for Rose and the band isn't dry just yet. Darkness and fatalism wear different costumes, and despite the poise and introspection of nightmares, Rose hasn't jettisoned his pissed-off ex-punk defiance. My feeling is that the show will kinda be in two parts. We'll do the ethereal, new, intimate, exposed Raw album, and then we're just gonna have a cathartic, shit-kicking barn burner, he said. For me, that's where the exorcism really takes place. I have a lot of baggage to unpack. Between the Notes Apishatpong Wirasithakul's Memoria to play CU Boulder's International Film Series on 35mm by Michael J. Casey Jessica first heard the bang in the early morning hours. It's an unearthly sound a loud thump she describes as a big concrete ball falling into a metallic well surrounded by seawater. Certainly not a sound you hear every day, but for the Scottish scholar living in Columbia, it's a sound that haunts her in a way that feels both random and specific. Starring Tilda Swinton and written and directed by Thai filmmaker Apichatpong Wirase Thakul, Memoria is a movie where the ear directs the eye. It's also a movie that requires your full attention and rewards those who give it. I suppose that's why distributor Neon decided it would only be released in theaters, never on home video. It's a strategy that speaks to the sanctity of the movie theater, not to mention a clever ploy to take the passivity out of movie watching. Jessica's search for the sound no one else seems to hear brings her to a man no one else seems to know, Juan Pablo Urego, and another living in the jungle with nothing more than his memories, Elkin Diaz. Curiously, both men bear the same name, Hernan. Memoria is a sometimes slow, sometimes meandering mystery that winds its way into the South American jungle but never loses focus. It's reminiscent of a Haruki Murakami tale, a work of magical realism where the magic doesn't feel that unusual and the realism doesn't feel that grounded. Wirasi Thakul has made a name for himself on the world stage with his dreamy mythical takes on slow cinema, a type of visual storytelling that brings to life Claude Debussy's aphorism. Music is the space between the notes, His 2000 debut, Mysterious Object at Noon, playfully breaks from the narrative because Wirase Thakul seems to decide mid-movie that he wants to make something else. In 2004's Tropical Malady, the movie reincarnates itself when one of the characters disappears into the jungle and reappears as a tiger. Memoria is something different. The narrative feels tighter and more focused. That banging noise doesn't just initiate Jessica's quest, it directs it, slowly bringing her closer to the place she is meant to discover. I'm not sure Jessica gets to see what makes the noise, but everyone in the theater does. It's one of the most surprising and satisfying reveals I've seen in a long time. On its own, Memoria is a great movie that deserves an audience. But Neon's one-theater-at-a-time release strategy has elevated every screening into one of the year's premier cinematic events. The film casts a wonderful spell, a warm, comforting spell that wipes clear the doors of perception, and it could only work in a theatrical setting. And that Memorial will unspool on 35 millimeters for CU Boulder's International Film Series screening is all the more reason to go. For more, tune in to After Image, Fridays at 3 p.m. on KGNU, 88.5 fm, and online at kgnu.org. Overdue Praise for the Shishito by Ari LeVaux. It wasn't love at first bite, but I finally warmed up to the shishito pepper. The name is an abbreviation of Shishito Garashi, which is Japanese for the tip of this pepper looks like a lion's face. This description is as fanciful as looking for faces in clouds, but you don't need to imagine a lion in order to appreciate the shishito. Shishitos are finger-length, thin-skinned, wrinkled, and usually mild. But every now and then you'll get a hot one which keeps things exciting. My introduction to this pepper came at the farmer's market in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where growers bill them as frying chilies. This distinction is important because roasted green chili is a sacred autumn tradition in New Mexico, where Chile roasters are everywhere, in seemingly every parking lot and empty space. These propane-heated rotating steel mesh cages resemble giant hamster wheels. As the hot roaster spins, the chilies inside are tossed and cooked until they are collapsed and blistered, releasing their intoxicating fragrance into the air. Locals call it New Mexican aromatherapy. It makes everybody within smelling distance happy and hungry. Roasted green chile is arguably the backbone of New Mexican cuisine, thanks to a simple and delicious formula. Add green chile to food, and add the phrase green chile to what you call it. Thus, a cheeseburger becomes a green chili cheeseburger. Scrambled eggs become green chili scrambled eggs. Enchiladas become green chili enchiladas. At the Santa Fe Farmer's Market, shishito growers have skillets in their stalls, which they use to demonstrate the shishito's fryability. They fry their shishitos in a few drops of oil and put them on plates for customers to sample. I was one such sampler, and I was not impressed. The frying thing seemed like a gimmick and didn't fill the air with as much fragrance as traditionally Mexican chile varieties like Big Jim, Sandia, and Numex. It took a farmer in Montana, where I now live, to turn this perception upside down, and all he had to do was let the shishitos ripen. Any pepper will eventually turn red if you leave it long enough and my farmer friend waits until his shishito crop resembles a Christmas sweater before bringing his red and green mix to market. The red shishitos add a pleasing sweetness to the mix, making it more complex. Finally, after years of denial, I hopped aboard the shishito bandwagon. Back in Santa Fe, the lower heat of the shishito was a turn-off, but now that I'm older and have less to prove, I don't mind my chilies because I can eat more of them. And without being surrounded by chili roasters on every corner as one is in New Mexico, I've noticed that blistered chichitos actually smell pretty good. With the help of my friends' red and green chichitos, I've been converting my burgers, eggs, soups, and pretty much everything else within reach into New Mexican-style cuisine. Here is a recipe for lemon miso shishitos that brings us full circle to the pepper's Japanese roots. It's based on the blistered shishitos on the menu at the acclaimed Nobu restaurants. I've added salmon to make it a complete meal rather than an appetizer. And because the lemon miso glaze is a perfect sauce for salmon, I serve the shishitos and salmon with jasmine rice rather than Japanese rice because jasmine rice adds a lovely fragrance that dances elegantly with the aroma of the shishito. This recipe employs white miso, which I greatly prefer to the darker varieties. White miso contains rice fermented with the usual soybeans, which makes for a sweeter paste into which I will liberally dip my spoon and snack on while making this dish. And while shishitos are sold as frying chilies in New Mexico, I prefer my shishitos broiled. Lemon and miso glazed shishito peppers with salmon, serves two. Combining elements of east and southwest, this transcontinental recipe is so delicious, you won't know where you are. One pound salmon filet, cut from the thick end. One pound fresh shishito peppers, washed and dried. One quarter cup white miso paste. The juice of one lemon. One half teaspoon salt. One tablespoon butter. 3 tablespoons sesame seeds, soy sauce to taste, jasmine rice. Turn the oven to a broil. Position an oven rack about 7 inches below the element or flame. Combine 2 tablespoons lemon juice and the miso and stir together until completely mixed. Sprinkle the fish with salt. Let sit for 15 minutes, then rinse it with the remaining lemon juice. Smear the fish with half of the lemon miso mixture. Let it sit in the fridge until it's time to cook it. Rinse the shishitos and put them on a baking pan. Roast them under the broiler, tossing and stirring often until they are blistered on all sides, about 12 minutes. Remove from the oven to cool. You can roast any chili this way, including New Mexico style, Anaheim, poblano, jalapeno, etc., Put half of the butter on the salmon and place the fish in an oven pan under the broiler, skin side down, and cook until browned on top and solid to the touch, about 10 minutes. Remove and let cool. Toss the shishitos with the remaining lemon slash miso paste and the remaining half-tablespoon of butter. Plate the shishitos and salmon with rice, garnish with the sesame seeds and a lemon wedge, and serve with soy sauce. Bridging the Knowledge Gap As the gap between medical professionals and the science of cannabis grows, some advocates are fighting to fill it. By Will Brenza There are 27,000 licensed physicians in the state of Colorado. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, CDPHE, only 311 of those are registered with the government to write medical marijuana prescriptions. There used to be more medical marijuana physicians, says Martha Montemayor, a certified nutritional consultant and the founder and director of Colorado Cannabis Clinicians, CCC. But the Regulating Marijuana Concentrates Bill, HB 1317, changed that. Weed between the lines, now in effect, January 6th, 2022. Passed last year, the bill not only severely restricts medical patients' access to cannabis, but also changed the rules for doctors recommending cannabis to patients. Cannabis recommendations were legal and protected by a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling, Conan v. Walters. While cannabis prescriptions were still federally illegal and could cost a doctor their medical insurance or license, they could recommend cannabis concentrates, for example, to a patient suffering from epilepsy. They could not prescribe it. HB 1317 now requires doctors to actually write patients' prescriptions for cannabis concentrates, which cost the state a lot of medical marijuana physicians, according to Montemayor. At the beginning of 2022, there were well over 400 of them. After HB 1317 went into effect, over a third of those disappeared. That said, when you go to the Department of Public Health website, It shows that 30% of people in Colorado have used cannabis in the last five years, Montemayor says, adding that when you look at national statistics, 52% of adults have tried cannabis in their lifetimes. That means over 95% of doctors know nothing about something that half of their patients have already used and 30% use regularly, she says. That's a gap we want to bridge. Montemayor started the nonprofit to support doctors, clinicians, caregivers, marijuana industry professionals, anyone working with medical marijuana patients, with science and advocacy help. They provide education based on science for medical professionals about a topic many see as too taboo to touch. In 2014, CCC held its first Marijuana for Medical Professionals Conference the event is yet another effort on Montemayor's part to bridge that knowledge gap between doctors and the science of cannabis. It isn't something taught in medical school, and it certainly isn't something doctors and nurses learn about in the hospital. And with the amount of mis- and disinformation surrounding this still federally scheduled substance, doing research on one's own can be confusing and disheartening. The Medical Professionals Conference is a chance to plug medical professionals into the right spigots of information. It offers certified continuing medical education and continuing nursing education for physicians, nurses, and clinicians. One of the problems is doctors who write medical marijuana in Colorado are excluded from a lot of conventional medicine, Montemayor says. And as a result we have a lot of doctors who know nothing about it. How are you supposed to make a good recommendation for a patient when you don't know anything about it yourself? The fourth Medical Professionals Conference will take place this November 4th, 5th, and 6th, and the schedule of seminars and lineup of speakers is the most impressive yet. 24 MDs, PhDs, RNs, lawyers, Cannabis business people, and even representatives from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment will speak over the three-day event at the Hyatt Regency in Aurora. The keynote speaker this year is Spanish physician Cristina Sanchez. Her research on cannabis and breast cancer helped prove that the entourage effect is real and tangible. Weed between the lines, all about those terpenes. May 27th. 2022 montemayor says there will also be doctors discussing their experiences using cannabis to treat aids and hiv patients she invited dr libby stewart an addiction psychiatrist who montemayor calls one of the architects of hb 1317 to talk about her real experiences with teens who have had psychotic breaks after using cannabis concentrate We really do have something for everyone who works with cannabis patients, Montemayor says. The conference isn't just for doctors and nurses either. Montemayor says a lot of doctor and nursing students attend to learn about a medicine their schools aren't allowed to discuss. A handful of business owners and entrepreneurs show up to learn more about the medical science surrounding the plant they sell. There are even a few curious journalists listening in to get the scoop on the newest science and developments in cannabis medicine. Our goal is to bridge that knowledge gap so that doctors in Colorado feel confident talking to patients about medical marijuana, Montemayor says. It's going to be a fantastic conference. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly. Have a good night.